Welcome to the Liberty Cafe, where oppression is on the menu. Hi, my name is Bill Peacock, and welcome to episode 48 of the Liberty Cafe. Glad to have you here with me, blessed to have you here with me, and blessed to be part of the Texas Scorecard family as our sponsor and fighting with liberty, for liberty with them across the great state of Texas. Well, this is part two of our two-part series on, you know, let's call it the purpose of government or maybe the 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 types of government, the, the, the purpose of government, how the different forms of government are supposed to carry out. And last week, we went over the individual government and the family government. This week, we're going to talk about church government and civil government because, as I pointed out last week, in our minds, in our brains, too often when we hear, hear the word government, we go straight to civil government. We just think that's it. But that's really masking or hiding the purposes of government that God has given us and the form of government. God gave us government for a reason. And why did he give us government? Well, let's talk about that for just a minute. So if you talk to the if you go to the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is the, you know, the Westminster Divines put together this back in the, the 1500s, the 1600s, excuse me, and about systematic theology. And the first question in the Westminster uh, Catechism, larger, smaller catechism, no larger catechism, I think it is. Anyway, what is the chief end of man? Well, they say the chief man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And I agree with that. But how, how are we supposed to do that? Well, if, if we go over to Psalm 27, it kind of gives us a little feel of how we go about achieving glorifying and enjoying God forever. And let me just read verses 6 and 7 to you out of that uh, from Psalm 27, or actually 4, uh, verse 4. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. So the way we're going to get to glorify God and enjoy him forever is to live in his house and do that forever. And, and that's an amazing thought, to be able to live in the house of the Lord. But how is that going to come about? Well, if we go back to Genesis 1, we talked a little bit about this last week. God created man, man and woman, husband and wife, and put him in a garden. And in the garden, everything was all planted and it was all nice and neat. And their job was to tend the garden at first, but then they were supposed to be fruitful and multiply and go out and make the rest of the world look like the garden. And why were they supposed to do that? Well, if you recall that God used to walk around in the garden with Adam and Eve. And so 
God's dwelling place was with man in the Garden of Eden. And, and you see Bible scriptures that talk about this. The dwelling place of God is with man. Well, their job was to prepare the whole world like the garden so the whole world could be the dwelling place with man. And so God gave them government and has given us government to carry out the dominion or the creation mandate so that we will go out there and carry out the what God has given us to do, right? He's told us to go have dominion, and how are we going to do that? Well, we're going to exercise government. Last week we talked about self-government. None of this works without self-government or self-control. Then none of it works without family government, the family being the main unit of the world that, you know, where, you, where they're first the multiplying, the fruit being fruitful, multiply. You have the children and you raise them up in the Lord. And then the family unit is the unit that interacts with other families. And so all the markets and, and all the trading and all the cooperation that go together, first and foremost, go through the family. Now, there are substitute units of that in, in the world today, like corporations and things like that. But the family is still the first part of that. But then God also gave us two other forms of government that are needed well, at least needed in the fallen world. I'd suggest that we wouldn't have needed these forms of government in the pre-fallen world without sin because both of these types of government we're going to see wield the sword. Family government and individual government didn't have that sword and don't have that sword today. There's discipline, but the discipline was teaching them about God. It's only since the fall that discipline has gotten a sort of a negative connotation. Still positive. They're trying family discipline, self-discipline is still involved in, in bringing the children back to obedience to God. But then after the fall, here came church government and civil government, and they got the sword. Now, the, the church got the sword of the word of God. You know, there's, there's pictures in Daniel and, and Revelation where Jesus Christ is there, and the word of God is coming out of his mouth in the form of a sword. And so the church has that sword. That's how they are supposed to enforce themselves, to take the word out there. And, you know, it can ultimately, even in this fallen world, go as far as excommunication, right? You, you take the word, you apply it to somebody. If they are not believing that word, if they're not living out the word that Jesus Christ is Lord and they have not called on Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, then they are put out of the church. That's also that sword is used to bring people into the church if, you know, and to guard the church, just kind of like we guard the Garden of Eden with that sword. The civil government, however, has been given the sword of steel. And the, they have the sword of steel because their work is not spiritual, it's material or physical. And basically, just like the church has the sword of the Word of God to protect the church, to keep its boundaries sound and protect the members in it from heresy and from error and from sin, the Civil government has the sword of steel to do the same thing, except it's protecting the members of the government, of the 
the citizens of the government from physical harm. So the, the, the civil government has this idea of protection too, but they actually have a real sword that they can do damage with to people who are trying to harm other people. Now, we've seen how this has all gotten confused in the past, particularly we saw this during the Middle Ages where the church, not just the Catholic church, but mainly the Catholic church, sought to enmesh itself with government so it could also use the steel sword. Now, this goes way back, remember, going back to the time of Jesus even and before, but the Jews wanted to kill Jesus, but the Jews couldn't kill Jesus because they didn't have the power of the steel sword. They just had the power of the Word of God. And so they got all cozy with the Roman government and, in fact, pretty much coerced the Roman government to use a steel sword on Jesus. Well, that's kind of what was going on during the Reformation where the church couldn't control people and the the reformers were going out there and saying, Catholic Church, you're wrong. You have not interpreted the Word of God right or you are going away from what the church did before. So we're going to reform you and speak the truth in the gospel about Christ being our Savior alone. But the Catholic Church didn't like that, but they couldn't do much about it except excommunicate it, but they wanted to do more than that. They wanted to take those people out, and so they did. Right? You had Jan Hus, who was one of the early reformers before Martin Luther. What was his problem? He was preaching the gospel, right? But he got his – well, I can't remember how they got him, but, but he, he lost his life. And then uh, William Tyndale, what was his great crime? He translated the Bible into English and lost his life over that. And so that's where the church started using the steel sword instead of the word of God to the detriment of the church. Now, we still see this today, not so much in the Christian church, but this is the model. I mean, it's actually not – it's the model. It's the foundation of Islam, right? You can see a lot of – similarities between Islam and Christianity, which isn't surprising because they both go back to Abraham and and, and things like that. Christianity is trying to save the world and bring everybody into faith, Jesus Christ, and to destroy God's enemies. And so the, the best way to destroy God's enemies is by convert them into his people. But not everybody's going to be, and so the sword of the Word of God keeps them out of the church, and eventually they, the enemies of God wind up in hell. But that's a spiritual sword, and the church applies that, and then God ultimately decides who's going to go where at the end of time. Well, the Muslim church takes this – or the Muslim church, the Islam – takes this steel sword and applies it to the situation. So they're out there trying to convert people. But if people don't convert, then they get their heads cut off. And that's quite often the case with, with Islam. And so we, we, it's all getting confused. So right now I just want to walk us through a couple of things about church government and civil government to help us straighten this out again. So remember, we started with individual government, family government. Now we're on a church government and civil government. So I'd like to talk a little bit about how do we finance the government? And, and we're going to talk both about the church and the state here. So generally, when we think about church and state government, civil government, they get their money through giving, right? So 
the the family government and the individual government, the individual and the family unit, they get their money by being productive in an economic sort of way, right? They provide goods and services to somebody who values them and they get money in return for that. Or, you know, in some places they get goods back, you know, you know more of a barter society. But it's a product economic productivity kind of feature. That doesn't happen in, in both church or civil government. Now, there, there's some places where things get messed up a little bit. Maybe a pastor will write a book. People will buy it. He'll make some money off of that. And the civil government runs maybe toll roads and gets some money off of that. But civil government and the church government couldn't survive without giving. Now, there is a difference between that giving. In the church, it's voluntary. At least I've never seen a, a church, you know, for instance, excommunicate somebody over not giving or tithing, although the Bible is pretty clear that we should tithe to our church. In the civil government, though, giving is coercive. If you don't give, pay your taxes, then eventually they're going to come get your house or get your bank account or sometimes even get you. Right? So the, there are differences between the church and the state here, but the big difference is between church and state and the individual and the family. Uh, it, it's They don't get their money from being productive from an economic perspective. They're productive in other ways, but not from that. So let's look at the authority of government real quick. First of all, there's the authority of church government. And when I'm talking about authority, I'm not talking about where the authority comes from because we know where the authority for all government comes from, and it's God. But what are they authorized to do? With the church government, it starts with discipling the nations. We talked a little bit about the Great Commission last week in Matthew 28. Jesus told the church to go out and disciple the nations, not just individuals, but nations. We're supposed to convert the nations so that the nations come to God. That's the very first, That's a lot of people call that the mission statement of the church, disciple the nations. The second thing that churches are supposed to be doing is to keep the church from sinful behavior and doctrinal error. You know, that's why we've had lots of church councils over the years where they've looked at the Bible and tried to understand what the Bible's telling us about God. You know, that's where we got the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed, uh, the Westminster Confession and, and the Westminster Divines that came together were working on that because they were trying to bring the church back to biblical doctrine, which the Catholic Church had run away from. So that's what they're supposed to do. And they're also in the business of helping the offenders when it comes to sinful behavior and doctrinal error come back to the church and see their need to repent. So you know, people who are doing things that are, are unlawful in God's eyes need to be brought back in. And as I've talked about before, sometimes that even involves excommunication. But excommunication is not punitive. It's, it's a discipling, right? It's a discipline to help them see the error of their ways and come back into the church. Uh, the next thing they should do, the church is authorized to do, is settle disputes among believers. The Bible is pretty clear that believers shouldn't sue other believers, at least not initially. They should come to the believers and try and work it out. If they can't, go to the church and the elders and let them work it out. If you're in the same church, that's great. If not, go to the elders of his church or her church and work it out. And then the final big picture thing that the church is supposed to do is tend to the welfare of the poor and widows. 
we saw that back in uh, in in the gospel period, right after Christ had died, and we had the era, the apostolic era, and the Greek Jews were com- Christians were complaining that their widows and orphans were not getting taken care of. So the the apostles said, well, we need to be preaching the gospel, not waiting on tables. So they created the deacons. And the deacons' job was to go out and take care of the widows and orphans, first in the church, but there's also room for that outside of the church. And I, and I think it's really important to remember this when we start talking about the the role of civil government, and which is what we'll talk about now. And, and I'll get back to that in, in just a minute. So, the authority of civil government. I don't have a, a big, long list of scripture to, to go with, over with you today because I just want to hit the big picture here. And I think the best place to do that when it comes to the authority of civil government is to look at Matthew twenty two twenty one, which says, this is Jesus talking, and he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now, you probably remember where that came from, what situation that was in. So the, the rulers of Jerusalem, and I can't remember if it was the, the teachers of the law or the Sadducees or the Pharisees or the scribes, but it was some group of the religious establishment in Jerusalem, and they were trying to eliminate Jesus as a problem. And they were hoping that they didn't have to do it themselves, that they could figure out some other way to do that because just like the establishment today doesn't like the truth about God, neither did they. And why didn't they like it? Why didn't they like it back then, and why don't they like it now? Well, because the establishment gets its wealth and power from places other than God. Right? And when God steps up and gets in the way, biblical truth preached by the church or brought into the debate by those of us, particularly here, Jesus— they don't like it, so they try and get rid of it, as we see with the council culture today. So they tried to, they came and hit to Jesus and tried to trap him by asking him a difficult question. And the question was, should we pay taxes? Well, why is that a difficult question? Well, because they're trying to trap him because if Jesus said yes, he was going to make the Jews mad because the Jews, particularly the Jews in Jerusalem, because Jerusalem was the center of worldly power, unfortunately, and that's why Jerusalem was destroyed um, within a generation after Christ died, because it had become a worldly center rather than a spiritual, God-focused center. Worship was failing in Jerusalem. And so uh, the Jews there were particularly oppressed as well, by high taxes. That wasn't the case up in Galilee where Jesus spent most of his ministry time, but in Jerusalem it was. And they hated paying taxes to the Romans. And so if Jesus had said yes to this question, should we pay our taxes, people would have gotten mad at him. He would have lost a lot of followers. Maybe they would have even revolted against him and run him out of town. But what if Jesus would have said no to the question, should we pay taxes? Well, Guess who would have gotten mad at him then? That would have been the Roman government. And that would have truly solved the problems of the Jews because the Roman government would have come and arrested him and probably executed him because 
saying that the Jews shouldn't pay taxes to the Roman is sedition and treason because that's how the Romans operated things. They took over areas and they let oftentimes they let them do a lot of things as long as they paid tribute or taxes uh, to the Romans. And so that would have solved the problem. But Jesus was wiser than the Jews. And what did he say? Well, he said, give me a denarii, which was the coin of the day. And then they brought it to him. He said, whose likeness is on this coin? And they said, Caesar's. And so in great wisdom, he said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now, why is that the the fundamental type, the fundamental place where we start looking for the the authority or the, the purposes or the, the things that civil government should be doing? Well, because Jesus is telling us here that there are things that Caesar should be doing and there are things which Caesar shouldn't be doing. So there are things that government should be doing according to God and his purposes for creation and there are things which he should, Caesar or government shouldn't be doing. And we've already talked about that. There are, there are things that individuals should be doing under individual government that the, that the civil government shouldn't be interfering with. And there are things that the family government should be doing. We talked about health, education, and welfare that the civil government shouldn't be doing. And so what do we do with all – what do we do with that? Well, we dig into Scripture. And we look for the specific passages of Scripture that tell us about what the government should and shouldn't be doing. And the only, the only thing I'm going to talk about now, we're going to close with this, is we're really going to look at this concept of centralization. And instead of, you know, whether schools should be doing, I mean, government should be doing schools or welfare or whatever, because I think it's really important. So we see lots of examples in the Bible about how centralization is a really bad thing, right? What was this, the sin at Babel? Well, they wanted to make themselves like God, and they wanted to be God, and they wanted to reach the heavens with this tower instead of with Jesus. But the real big thing was, or one of the big things was, there were 70 nations. If you read the the families of Noah after the flood, there were 70 nations running around the world, and they were actually spreading out and being fruitful and multiplying, exercising dominion. Well, at Babel, they all wanted to come back together, stop this spread, and be at one place. Well, that's centralization. It's bad. It's corrupting, and it's against the purposes of God, so they were punished. Abimelech was uh, a judge, the son of a judge and a judge in Israel during the time of Judges, but he wasn't by himself. He had 70 brothers. Well, there were 70 all together of them, but Abimelech decided one ruler was a lot better than 70, so he invited his brothers over for dinner and killed them all. So centralization, it didn't go well for Abimelech. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, a vision that his dominion reached to the ends of the earth, and he thought that was a great thing. And in fact, Babylon, who he was the king over, did have this vast dominion. So God humbled him and humbled Babylon by driving Nebuchadnezzar crazy. And for seven years, he ate grass like the animals because he was insane. And then God restored him and he praised God. And, and so we see in those situations and in other situations where Christ just crushes 
those that oppose him, particularly those who oppose him through the, through the sin of centralization. On the other hand, we see in the Bible a lot of positive things about decentralization, right? particularly decentralized government. For instance, back in Genesis 10, we've already talked about that, there were these 70 nations. That was a good thing. Then we had Israel was divided into 12 tribes. It wasn't one central government. There was a king, but there was 12 tribes, and they all ruled individually. We saw Moses, who appointed 70 judges, because not only was it decentralized, but one judge couldn't handle the work. It needs to be spread out. Israel, in fact, was ruled by these local elders at the gates, and so were a lot of other cities back in that point in time. So there was a very disparate and decentralized type of government in those days. And even Paul in the New Testament talks about multiple governing authorities and rulers and servants. So there's just this pattern of decentralization in there. And a lot of times, you know, we'll see in the Bible sometimes that thou shall not kill or thou shall not steal. There are these direct things that are very clear. But other times we don't have that, and so we need to look at patterns in the Bible and see what the Bible teaches us through those. And it's very clear that centralized government is bad, decentralized government is good. And nowhere can you see this more clearly than in the foundation of the American government. The the founders of our country just dripped this stuff in their veins. They knew about the fallen nature of man. They knew how power corrupted and absolute power corrupted absolutely. They knew about how when you centralize things, the, the temptation was too great. And plus, it was not going to work out very well just from a it, – it, it doesn't work very well when you just have all this centralized power, in part because of oppression, but in part because it's just very uncoordinated. So what does that mean for us today? Well, we got to look for – decentralized government. And in fact, the founders gave us that. They did the separation of powers. We had the, the legislative and the executive and the judicial branches of government. That was the horizontal spreading out of power. And then you had federalism, which was you had the federal government at the top, but it could only do certain things. And most of the power is left to these states that could do a lot of things. Well, I'd suggest to you today that our government today is not functioning the way that Either God designed it or the founders of our country designed it. And these things have collapsed both on the federal and the federalism and on the, the separation of powers. So we're, we'll talk about that more one day. But for right now, this is a, the end of our primer on the purposes of government and the, the foundations of the four types of government. And we, we just have to remember that, that God created all these forms of government and purposes of government to, to carry out his purposes. And so that we might be able to be vessels for those purposes, which is ultimately enjoying God, glorifying God and enjoying forever. So we need to, if we're going to look for that fulfillment one day, and we, we know it's coming, but it'd be nice to get it here quicker rather than later. We need to be looked to recapture an understanding of government that will help bring society back to sanity and, and looking at God instead of all the crazy things we have out there today. So thank you very much for being with us on episode 48 of the Liberty Cafe, and we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Liberty Cafe with Bill Peacock. This show is produced by Texas Scorecard. 
You can learn more about this show and find other shows at texasscorecard.com. Be sure you subscribe and rate the show on whatever platform you listen on. See you next time.